This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. We have the second scripture reading for today, and this is taken from 1 Samuel chapter 22, verse 6, all the way to 23, verses 14. And our sister Samantha will be reading this for us. Um, hi, everyone. If you don't have a Bible, you may get one from the tables at the sides, or you can raise your hand and we can pass one to you. So today's reading is from 1 Samuel chapter 22, um, verses 6 to chapter 23, verses 14. Verse 6. Now Saul heard that David and his men had been discovered. And Saul was seated, spear in hand, under the tamarisk tree on the hill at Gibeah, with all his officials standing at his side. He said to them, Listen, men of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give you all you, give all of you fields and vineyards? Will he make all of you commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? Is that why you have all conspired against me? No one tells me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is concerned about me or tells me that my son has incited my servant to lie and wait for me as he does today. But Doak the Edomite, who is standing with Saul's official, said, I saw the son of Jesse come to Amalek, son of Ethod, at Nob. Amalek required for of the Lord for him. He also gave him provisions and the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Then the king sent for the priest Amalek, son of Ethod, and all the men of his family who were the priests at Nob. And they all came to the king. Saul said, Listen now, son of Ethod. Yes, my lord, he answered. Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse? giving him bread and a sword and inquiring of God for me, so that he has rebelled against me and lies in wait for me as he does today. Amahimelech answered the king, Who of all your servants is as loyal as David, the king's son-in-law, captain of your bodyguard and highly respected in your household? Was that day the first time I inquired of God for him? Of course not. Let not the king accuse your servant or any of his father's family, for your servant knows nothing at all about his whole affair. But the king said, You will surely die at Himalek, you and your whole family. Then the king ordered the guards at his side, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because they too have sided with David. They knew he was fleeing, yet they did not tell me. But the king's officials were unwilling to raise a hand to strike the priests of the Lord. The king then ordered Doeg, He turned and strike down the priests. So Doeg the Edomite turned and struck them down. That day he killed eighty-five men who wore their linen effort. He also put to the sword Nob, the town of the priest with its men and women, its children and infants, and its cattle, donkeys, and sheep. But one son of Ahimelech, son of Ethub, named Abithiah, escaped and fled to join David. He told David that Saul had killed the priest of the Lord. Then David said to Abithiah, That day, when Doeg the Edomite was there, I knew he would be sure to tell Saul, I am responsible for the death of your whole family. Stay with me, don't be afraid. The man who wants to kill you is trying to kill me too. You'll be safe with me. When David was told, Look, the Philistines are fighting against Kela and are looting the threshing floors. He inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? The Lord answered him, Go, attack the Philistines and save Kela. But David's men said to him, Here in Judah we are afraid. How much more then if we go to Kela against the Philistine forces? Once again, David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered him, Go down to Kailah, for I am going to give you the Philistines into your hand. 
So David and his men went to Kailah, fought the Philistines, and carried off their livestock, inflicted heavy losses on the Philistines, and saved the people of Kailah. Now Abiathar, son of Ahimelech, had brought the effort down with him when he fled to David at Kailah. Saul was told that David had gone to Kailah, and he said, God has delivered him into my hands, but David has imprisoned himself by entering a town with gates and bars. And Saul called up all his forces for battle, to go into Kailah to besiege David and his men. When David learned that Saul was plotting against him, he said to Abithar the priest, Bring the effort. David said, Lord God of Israel, your servant has heard definitely that Saul plans to come to Kailah and destroy the town on account of me. Will the citizens of Kailah surrender me to him? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? Lord God of Israel, tell your servant. And the Lord said, He will. Again David asked, Will the citizens of Kailah surrender me and my men to Saul? And the Lord said, They will. So David and his men, about 600 in number, left Kailah and kept moving from place to place. And Saul was told that David has had escaped from Kailah, did not go there. David stayed in the wilderness strongholds and in the hills of the desert of Ziph. Day after day, Saul searched for him, but God did not give David into his hands. This is the word of God. I invite Pastor Andrew now to give this sermon. Okay, let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much for speaking to us. Help us not to take for granted your communication to us. Help us to take to heart your message to us. We pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. When my kids were younger, I remember reading some articles about bullying. So I became concerned about my sons being bullied. So I remember asking uh, my sons, Ben and Josh, and they said, you know, hey, kids, you know, do you ever get bullied? You know, if you ever get bullied, right, don't be scared to tell daddy, okay? Anyway, so my sons turned to me, said with great seriousness, that we play rugby. Who bullies the rugby players? And I think that's true, right? Because when I was young and I was in school, I got bullied. But I had a good friend of mine who was a rugby player. He was a forward very big guy. You know, the forwards are the guys who play in the forward pack, right? He said to me, come and hang out with the rugby players. So I hang out with them, sit at their table, and lo and behold, I don't get bullied anymore. So where did I find safety? I found safety with the rugby players, right? And safety is a big topic today. You know, where do we find safety? Where do we go for safety? Whom can we turn to for safety? Now, what do you see here? What's that? Camel, right? Okay, so you see a camel. Dr. Ben Thompson from the ETCA, who's done a PhD on 1 and 2 Samuel, he sees 1 and 2 Samuel. What does that mean? Well, he sees the narrative structure of 1 and 2 Samuel as being like these humps on the camel. So that's what we've been seeing so far. The judge and the prophet Samuel, he rises, right? At the same time, Eli, the priest, declines. We see King Saul rising again, then we see King Saul declining, and then we see the rise of King David. Now where are we in the camel? Where are we in the narrative of 1 and 2 Samuel? We are here, where Saul is declining and David is increasing. But this section is a really, really long, long, long section in 1 and 2 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 15, we already saw 
that God has spoken to the prophet Samuel and told King Saul, the kingdom is torn from you, right? Because you're rebellious, you're disobedient. And so the kingdom is torn from you. 1 Samuel chapter 16, King Saul, David is anointed by the prophet Samuel. But if you notice, it's not until 18 chapters later, in 2 Samuel chapter 2, that David actually becomes inaugurated as the king of all of Israel. Now, why is it taking so long, right? It's like, can we move on already? Why is it taking so long? Well, shouldn't be surprising to us, in the 2020 USA elections, the current incumbent President Trump lost the elections to Joe Biden. But President Trump didn't want to step down, right? Instead, he said, stop the steal. He said that the elections were rigged and the elections were stolen from him and he was still the prime minister. And this led, in the end, to the culmination of the storming of the Capitol building in the Washington, D.C. in January 6, 2020. Now, in the same way, King Saul was like, in many ways, like President Trump. Actually, he's worse. Because it's been seen so far in the last few weeks, it's not enough for King Saul to say that the elections were stolen. But what he wants to do is he wants to murder God's anointed King David, right? And that's what we've been seeing over and over again. And that's where we are in today's passage. Today's passage finds Saul seated under the tree with a spear in hand under the tamarisk tree. And he hears about David and his men because he's looking for them. He wants to kill David. He says in verse 7, Listen, men of Benjamin. Now this is really interesting, right? Saul is a Benjamite. And he seems to be surrounding himself with his kakilang, you know, his insiders, his Benjamites. If we could take a photograph of that day, and we could look at it today, we're like, hey, isn't that interesting? All the officers, all the generals, all the military officials, they all look like Saul. Why? Because they're his relatives and his tribesmen, his friends, right? And so he's surrounded himself with his inner circle. He's no longer the king of the 12 tribes of Israel. He's only surrounded himself with his own relatives. And he says to them, Will the son of Jesse give you fields and vineyards? Will he make all of you commanders and thousands of commanders of hundreds? So Saul has surrounded himself with his own relatives, and he's buying their loyalty, their loyalty sorry, by getting them on the Saul gravy train. He promises them possessions and property, wealth and power. So King Saul here is no longer the king of the 12 tribes of Israel, but he's come like this corrupt dictator, right? And he's like buying people's loyalty, they're buying the loyalty of his tribesmen. And he's serving himself, not the country. And he's serving his own tribe. But all is not well with King Saul. In verse 8, we see that he's having a pity party. You know, a pity party is like he's feeling sorry for himself. He says, look, why have all of you conspired against me? None of you is concerned about me. No one tells me about David. So here we see that King Saul, in spite of all the power that he has, has become very paranoid. He's neurotic. Everywhere he sees, he sees ghosts and backstabbers wanting to lie in wait to kill him, including his own people. Right? Now why is this happening? What's happening here? This is happening, all this conspiracy theory in his mind, because he's unwilling to transition out of power. He already knows, and the whole of the Israelite people already know that God has chosen 
David as his successor. But Saul is unwilling to hold, let go of power. He wants to hold on to power, right? So instead of listening to God, right, and allowing the smooth transition to David, he wants to destroy David. So if we look at Saul here, the way I would see Saul is, instead of listening to God the Father, Saul has become the Godfather. Right? You know the Godfather? He's like the Yakuza boss, the Jamaican drug lord, the Yakuza or the mafia kingpin. Right? So instead of being the king, he's the kingpin of this criminal organization. He just wants to hold on to power. He doesn't want to allow anybody to threaten his power. And together with his Benjamin gang, he rules over God's people. Passage then goes on, but, but, right, Diog the Edomite was standing with Saul's officials. Now why is there a but? It's strange, right, this but. It's a big but because Diog, the Edomite, is there. Why is he there? Remember when King Saul was chosen by the people, what was he meant to do? He was meant to defend the people from the enemies like the Edomites. But here we see that King Saul actually has one of the Edomites in his own inner circle. What is he doing there? This guy who is a pagan, this guy who is an idolater, this person who does not worship the God of Israel. But what's worse is, Look at what Diog the Edomite says. He actually feeds on the conspiracy and the fears and the paranoia of King Saul. He says, look, I saw the son of Jesse, David, and he went to the priest of Elimelech. Elimelech inquired of the Lord for him, suggesting that he's getting guidance from God as to how to kill King Saul. He gave him provisions and even the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. Now, when we hear of this incident, we actually are able to go to Psalm 52, which we just read for our responsive reading, to give us an insight into the motivations and the thinking of Diog. David wrote Psalm 52 for this occasion when Diog the Edomite had gone to Saul and told him, David has gone to the house of Ahimelech. You who practice deceit, your tongue plots destruction. It's like a sharpened razor. You love evil rather than good, falsehood rather than speaking the truth. You love every harmful word, you deceitful tongue. So we see here that uh, Georg is not just shading the truth. He's actively speaking falsehood, deceit, in order to sow destruction and wickedness on the part of Saul. I know one of my favorite movies is uh, The Lord of the Rings, and I think a lot of you like The Lord of the Rings too, right? And I remember there was this character, Grima Wormtongue. And Grima Wormtongue, if you remember in The Lord of the Rings, he's the advisor to King Theoden of Rohan. And you remember in the movie The Lord of the Rings, Grima Wormtongue, he's like feeding these lies and deceit into the ears of King Theoden of Rohan, right? Where he's turning him to evil and to wickedness. The betrayal. And so in many ways, Godfather Saul and the Benjamin gang includes Diog the Enomite, who is like also known as Wormtongue, right? He's feeding all these lies and deceitful words, feeding in the paranoia of King Saul to breed wickedness and destruction. The passage then goes on that King Saul then fed of all these lies and deceit from Diog the Edomite, 
calls Ahimelech and his family to go from Nob, you see Nob, that place, up to Gibeah. So Ahimelech and the, his family, un, like innocently, completely clueless, go to Gibeah of Saul, where they meet with Saul and his gang and Dior. He tries his best to plead his innocence and the innocence of David, but it's to no avail, right? Because Saul has in his mind filled with conspiracy, filled with murderous intent. And this is where we need to pay attention. The king said to Ahimelech, after hearing his innocence, you will surely die, Ahimelech. But not just you, you and your whole family, and the king ordered the guards at his side, turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because they too have sided with David. But the king's officials were unwilling to raise a hand to strike the priests of the Lord. So who did the dirty deed. It was Deog, the Edomite, who turned and struck down the priest. First thing we have to kind of notice is the way the narrator points out the contrast between the priests and Deog, right? You notice the way that the writer of 1 Samuel says this? We already know Deog is the Edomite. He doesn't have to keep repeating it, but over and over again, we're told Deog, the Edomite, kills the priest of the Lord, the priest of the Lord, the town of the priest. It's to show just how rebellious and how sinful and wicked King Saul is. Not only does he have the enemy among his inner officials, when his own people are unwilling to kill the priest of the Lord, he turns to the enemy, the Edomite, to kill the priest of the Lord. Now, if that's not bad enough, it's not just that Ahimelech dies, or that his whole family dies, or that 85 of the priests die, but if you notice, Diog actually goes beyond what King Saul instructs. He also put to sword the town of the priests with its men, its women, its children, its infants, its, tank, its cattle, its donkeys, and its sheep. Take a moment to soak in just what has happened, right? This is the whole of the religious structure of God's people. This is the whole sum total of all the priests within Israel. And King Saul has allowed the Edomite, the enemy, the pagan, the idolater, to kill God's priests. Now this is really shocking, right? Because it shows us what a failure King Saul is. Okay, don't worry about this picture. Okay. So if you remember back with chapter 22 now, back seven chapters ago, the reason why God had actually said to King Saul that the kingdom would be torn away from him was because of his failure to totally destroy the Amalekites, right? Samuel had told Saul, when you go attack the Amalekites, destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them, put them to death, the men, the women, the children, the infants, cattle, sheep, camels, and donkeys. Sounds really familiar, right? We just read that chapter 22. But what happens when Samuel gets to the battleground after that? He hears the baa of the sheep and the mooing of the cattle, right? Because Saul has been disobedient. He failed to destroy all the Amalekites and what they had, and he pounced on their plunder. But the big difference here is in chapter 22, what do you hear? Silence, right? There's no baaing of sheep, and there's no mooing of cattle. Because Saul has successfully destroyed 
and decimated and annihilated the whole town of the priests. So what Saul failed to do with the enemy, the Amalekites, Saul is successful with the priests of the Lord. What a terrible king Saul has become. And this is all because he refused to humble himself and has this paranoia and wants to kill David, God's anointed. Now for the original readers, and even for us as we read it, it's really shocking, right? That God would allow all his priests to be killed in this way, that God would allow the wickedness of Saul and Dior. How can God allow this? How can God do this? I want us to turn back another 20 chapters. So we look from chapter 22 to chapter 15. But if you go 20 chapters back to 1 Samuel 22, I want us to remember the time of Eli and his sons, Pinehas and Hopni. Now, if you remember, and I'm sure some of you may forget, so I'm going to remind you, 20 chapters ago, Eli, Pinehas, Hopni, they were all really evil priests. And so God had said to Eli, the father, that because of your failure to obey me and to restrain your kids, what am I going to do? I'm going to kill all of your line and remove your line from the priesthood. The time is coming, he says, when I will cut short your strength and the strength of your priestly house so that no one in it will reach old age. And he keeps repeating that, right? No one in your family line will ever reach old age. All your descendants will die in the prime of life. The time is coming, God said in 1 Samuel 2. And in 1 1 Samuel 22, the time has come. The time has come where, indeed, the fulfillment of God's word of judgment to Eli is fulfilled. So what do we see here? God is still in control. Even through the wickedness of King Saul, even through the wickedness and pagan destruction of Diog the Edomite, God is still in control. And that's really important for us to remember. I think that's one of the lessons that we have seen today. There was a story that was told uh, to me a few weeks ago at a conference that I went to about this guy called Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor is this really, really prominent missionary to China. Like he was like the most, one of the most important missionaries to China. He started the China Inland Mission, what we have today, the OMF, right? Overseas Mission Fellowship. There was a time where when Hudson Taylor was in China where he suffered great depression. He was really, really burnt out. The reason was because at this time, a lot of his fellow missionaries, his friends that he knew personally, were being persecuted in China. They were being forced to flee for their life. Their homes were being destroyed. And in fact, some of them were being murdered. And the toll of all this bad news really affected Hudson Taylor, so much so that uh, the biographers say that for three months, he did not write in his prayer journal. That was how affected he was by all this bad news, right? Missionary friends fleeing, houses destroyed, being murdered. But apparently, after this period of depression, when he came back, the situation was still the same. Missionaries were being persecuted. They were being attacked. Some of them were being murdered. But whenever he received bad news about these missionaries, you know what he would do? It was said that he would sing a hymn to himself, sing a song to himself, a Christian song. Some of his fellow missionaries thought that he was going crazy, right? You know, I tell you about someone, 
some missionary being forced to flee this region, some missionary dying, and you're singing songs, right? Like they thought maybe he lost his marbles. What they realized that he was doing was, every time he received bad news, he was reminding himself through singing the hymns that God was in control. He was reminding himself that God still loved him. I think that's what we need to see here in this passage, right? Even through this terrible, terrible episode, God was still in control. God was still watching over people. So for ourselves, when we feel that things are out of control too, we need to keep reminding ourselves that God is in control. The scene then changes now from the gang, the Benjamite gang and Georg and Gilbia to David. It says that one son of Ahimelech, Abiathar, escaped and fled to join David. David said to him, stay with me. Don't be afraid. The man who wants to kill you is trying to kill me too. You will be safe with me. Now, I question whether humanly David could actually say that, right? Imagine you have this huge army of of the Godfather Saul and his Benjamin gang, which we learn is five times greater than the refugees of David, together with Diog the Edomite, chasing you. Can you actually say, if you stay with me, you'll be safe? Well, humanly speaking, doesn't sound likely, right? Doesn't sound very positive. Narrative goes on to tell us that David was told that the Philistines were fighting at Kela and are looting the threshing floors. Now, this is a very bad situation. Kela is there. Saul is in Gilbia. Kela is down in the south. Kela is in trouble. If the Philistines are looting the, the, the threshing floor, it's almost like it means that you have no food, right? Your food is gone, you're starving, and there's a danger that the Philistines will attack and take Kela. If I'm David and his men, logical thing would be, who got time to save other people? Right? I've got, I got to save myself first, right? I take the Philistines, Saul can take the opportunity to attack me. But I want us to notice something which is very different for David compared to Saul. He inquired of the Lord. Twice it says he inquired of the Lord. Now, who was Saul inquiring to? Saul was inquiring to Diog, right? But David was inquiring of God. And twice God answers him. Once in a promise and once in a command, right? Go and attack the Philistines and save Kela. Go down to Kela, for I'm going to give the Philistines into your hands. A command and a promise. And because David was obedient to the Lord, he saved Kela. And twice we're told that he saved Kela. Now you notice here there's this constellation of a family of words which all are about safety. Saving and salvation, right? He told Abiathar, you stay with me, you'll be safe. He saves Kela. He brings salvation to the people of Kela. What we see here is that safety is found in the anointed one, right? When the anointed one is obedient to God. And this is really important for us. You always want to find safety in the anointed one of God. Now this passage here shows us then, oh, this safety is the safety hat, huh? 
God is in control, but you want to be safe, you need to stay in the anointed one, under God. Now, as we look at this passage, there's this funny, interesting verse in verse 6, which has inverted brackets, right? Now, Abiata, son of Ahimelech, had brought the ephod down with him when he fled to David at Kela. As we read this passage, you might think this is just some sort of throwaway, by-the-by comment, right? After all, it's in inverted commas. Why does the author bother to put it here? But actually, if you could just spend a moment with me, this verse 6 is actually the heart of the passage. So look at the structure of verse 1 to 13. You can actually see that in verse 1 and verse 13, there's a report that is received about David. Then in verse 2 to 4 and verse 8 to 12, there's guidance from God. In verse 5 and 7, there's Kalah. So right at the very centerpiece, very, very heart of this section is this ephod. Now, what's an ephod? You all know what ephod is? I also don't know what ephod is. I mean, it's not something that, uh, that we are very familiar with, right? So, but it seems to be really important in this story. Okay, so this is the priestly outfit. And so Abiata is the only priest left. So obviously, he's the only one who can wear this priestly garment. Within the priestly garment is this thing called the ephod. So the ephod is a bit like a, when I rarely, rarely cook, right? I, I, I put on this like thing in, on my front to stop me from getting burned because, you know, I'm not a very good cook, so the oil flies everywhere. So, but I don't wear ephod. I just wear this thing, right? But the priest wears an ephod, but in front of the ephod is this thing called an urim and a tumin. Nobody knows or has seen what an urim and tumin looks like. So people speculate maybe like dice, maybe like stones, maybe like squares, who knows, right? But this Urim and Tumin are meant to be God's communication hotline to his people. So the Urim and Tumin, or the ephod, is like this hotline to God. Now this is exceedingly important in the center of the passage because Abiata is the one who now wears the ephod and he's now with David. And David uses the ephod to speak to God. That means God speaks to David, guides David, instructs David, directs David through the use of the ephod. This is really, really important and crucial because it is through this ephod then that David is able to be protected from King Saul. So many years ago, I really, when I was growing up, liked reading Tintin comics. I like Tintin comics so much that I actually have two sets of Tintin today in my house, one in Chinese and one in English. I got the Chinese one in the hope that my kids' Chinese will get better, or maybe my Chinese will get better, but it didn't work. Like, we just read the English, right? So one of my favorite Tintin series is the Flight 714. If you have ever read it, it's, it's, quite, it's quite interesting, right? Anyway, so Tintin and Captain Haddock are on their way to Sydney, when they kind of get invited by this very, very rich man, Caridas, to get on his private jet. When they get on the private jet, Caridas is really interested in playing Battleship. Do you all know what Battleship is? This is like the days before mobile phones, computer games, uh, you know, Xbox and uh, Nintendo, right? We used to play these manual games like Battleship. 
So battleship is actually quite interesting. It's just two boards, and uh, you can't see each other's board. You put these little battleships on your squares, and then you you kind of like try to target your opponent's battleship on the on the, uh, the, the the I don't know what you call it, but the dots, lah, right, where the ocean is supposed to be. So Caridas is challenging uh, Captain Haddock on battleships, but you know what? Caridas wins every game over and over again. What's the secret? Secret is because he knows all the moves, right? He knows where every ship is of Captain Haddock. Well, in a sense, that's the advantage that David has on Saul now, right? Because he has the ephod and he's listening to the ephod and God is directing him, he knows exactly what Saul and his Benjamin gang are thinking and planning. And he knows exactly what Keilah will do in the future. And because of that, he is always able to be safe from the enemy. You see, you think about it. In human terms, in human resource, Saul had everything. Better army, better men, better resource. But God only had, sorry, David only had God, right, in the ephod. But the message is, give me God any day over the human resource. Because it is true God's protection, that David is always safe, right? It says, day after day, Saul searched for him, but God did not give David into his hands. Now that lesson is relevant for us today. Jesus is the fulfillment of David. And Jesus says to his sheep, those who listen to him, I give them eternal life that they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Now, if you look here, the principle is the same. Where can you find safety? It is only when you are safe in the hands of God's anointed and safe in the hands of God, right? Nothing can harm us. There is no power greater than us. There is nothing that we should fear. So what do we learn today? Well, God is in control. We're safe only in God's anointed. But more, here in the New Testament, we're safe because we are in Jesus' hands. Recently, there's a very prominent Christian called Timothy Keller who passed away. And um, really wonderful man, really respectful in terms of his relationship with God. He was uh, diagnosed with pancreatic cancer about uh, two years ago. Apparently, uh, I was reading some articles about him, and he said that um, when he went to see the doctor, the doctor actually told him, you do realize that you will probably die from this cancer. And he records that that day when he saw the specialist was the day where he felt that he actually had died. He realized that this would probably be the death of him, the big C, right? The pancreatic cancer. He was interviewed just last year, a year before he died, in the New York Times, asking how the cancer diagnosis has made Jesus' death and resurrection mean more to him. You can actually look it up and Google it one day, but hopefully not now. And this is one thing that he said which really struck me. The second change was you realize that there's one sense in which if you believe in God, 
It's a mental abstraction. That means it's just intellectual, right? You believe your head. I came to realize that the experiential side of my faith really needed to strengthen or I wasn't going to be able to handle this. It's one thing to believe God loves you, another thing to actually feel His love. It's one thing to believe He's present with you, it's another to actually experience His presence. So the two things I wrote down in my journal, one was focus, the other one was know the Lord. My experience of His presence and His love was going to have to double, triple, quintuple, or I wouldn't make it. I thought that's so relevant and true, right? that we can intellectually look at 1 and 2 Samuel, chapter 22 and 23, and say, yes, 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 God is control. We are safe in God's hands. He has power over all the world. But sometimes it can be just head knowledge, right? We need to keep making it real for ourselves, to be real in terms of an experiential faith, right? But Hudson Taylor, he tried to make it real because every time he got the really depressing news, he would sing a hymn to himself to remind himself of God's love, God's control, God's care over him. And so for ourselves too, as we look at this passage, once more, I'd like to invite us all to not just make it our head knowledge to know that God is in control, but to really have an experiential faith, to know that God's presence is with us. If he is with us, through Jesus, we will be safe. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, really want to ask that you may help us to take to heart the lessons from 1 Samuel chapter 22 and 23 today, to realize that you are the only God, that there is no human power, no matter how powerful, which can threaten us if we are your people, if we are Jesus' sheep. As we have seen, nothing can snatch us from your hand if we are within you, if we are in Jesus. And we pray for ourselves that this is not just something which is intellectual in our head, but this is something that is real and experiential for us, that your presence will truly be felt within us. We pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you, uh, Pastor Andrew, for the sermon. And if you're still wondering where you can buy this effort, uh, please come back. Um, We have uh, two reflection questions for you. Uh, Because of time, we'll not be going through uh, this uh, uh, in a breakout time, but please uh, take a picture of this uh, so that you can discuss with one another over lunch or ponder over these questions over the coming week. So first question is, how has the passage encouraged you in your faith? in God's hand protecting you. Question two, when do you ever doubt God's hand protecting you and what can you do to remain, uh, to remove this doubt? All right, I give you a moment to take down um, these questions. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at busypc.sg